pray, Lord, that you would anoint him and that you would give us ears every, to hear everything you have to uh, say to us through him. I pray that your words would be alive in our hearts. Us this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Thank you, Janie. Um, if, I'm going to stand up here. I can see you at the back then. You can't hide from me. Uh, so uh, we're going to be um, carrying on our series this week, which is Stories of a Welcoming Family. We're spending time looking at how we do community together as a church, how we grow and deepen that community, and not just this community, but also the communities that we're involved in in the rest of our life. And particularly today, what I want to look at is what impact that that community has, not just in each other, but on the world around us as we look at the Good Samaritan. Uh, as we come to it, I'm not going to read through the passage in one go. If you've got your mobile phones and you want to follow through, we will read it all in bits as I talk through it. It's in Luke chapter 10. It starts at verse 25. And we don't know exactly the setting that we come to in uh, this section of Luke. All we know is that a rabbi stands up to challenge Jesus. So it's probably Jesus was, was teaching in some capacity, and this other teacher of the law, uh, a rabbi, they're both rabbis, they've both got disciples, stands up to challenge Jesus. So we kind of have this public duel of rabbis, which is not uncommon in first century Israel. This is how they discuss matters of faith. They do it publicly with everybody else listening, the ex- experts refining kind of how they understand God's word. And if we put up the first slide, where might be the second slide, please? Uh, So this is what uh, Luke says. On one occasion, an expert of the law uh, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, uh, he replied, Jesus replied, and how do you read it? And so this is kind of uh, my first point I just want to make this morning, is that Jesus is identifying that there is a difference between knowledge of the scripture, knowledge of God's word, and actually how we understand it, how we apply it to our lives. And so as we come to do this today, and as we do this every day, as we come to God's word, we're not just seeking knowledge, but actually we want to be changed by it. We want to have our, our lives challenged, our minds challenged, our hearts challenged, and we want to live differently as a result of coming to God's word. So that's my prayer for me and for you as we look at this parable today. Uh, Now, the rabbi's answer to Jesus, if you move on to the next slide, is just kind of, he hits the nail bang on the head. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you recognize his words? They are Jesus' own summary of the law and the prophets when he was asked. So he's hit it bang on the head. You know, well done. Move on to the next slide. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Well, of course you would. Uh, Do this and you will live. If you want eternal life, then love God with everything that you are and have and love your neighbors as you love yourself. Go and do that. Jesus is happy for the encounter to end there, but the rabbi is not. He wants to challenge Jesus. And I don't know what his motive is. Maybe it's just a rabbi challenging a rabbi who's got slightly different views. Maybe he wants to try and trip Jesus up, get him to say something that will uh, cause people to lose confidence in his teaching. I'm not sure. But he then goes on to ask him, wanting to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? And I think he knows that Jesus has a controversial answer to this question. And Jesus' answer, as you know, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure you're all very familiar with it. But what I want to say to you today is that actually I think you're not as familiar with it as you think you are. 
it's actually a very challenging uh, little story that Jesus tells. And so I want to give you the background as I talk through it. So the setting of Jesus' story is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you can see there, uh, it now kind of sits pretty much in the West Bank. It runs from Jerusalem, which is at about 2,000 feet up. Move to the next slide, please. And descends, so it descends 2,000 feet into the Jericho Valley where the river is. It is a mountain path. It's not a roadway. It's a mountain path. It runs through Bethany, home of Mary and Martha, and where Lazarus was, Lazarus was raised from the dead. And it is a dangerous road. Even until the last century, it was known as the Way of Blood because it was renowned for criminals hiding in the crevices of rocks uh, and they would prey on the weak and the lonely and the vulnerable. It's the most direct way to Jericho, but you only kind of go on this road if you're traveling in groups. You don't do it alone or you don't do it without a donkey. So someone traveling on their own without an animal of some sort, uh, and it's foolish. Why would you do that? We're not quite sure. If you move on to the next slide, you'll also see that it's quite a narrow path. So as we come to Jesus talking about people passing by, we think on the other side of the road, like out here, where you would cross the road from one side of the street to the other. It's not like that. Change your mental model. When you see someone lying on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you pretty much have to step over the body or, or to shuffle around them. Jesus is saying that these people who walk by, they definitely saw and understood what was going on, and yet they chose to do nothing about it. This is what Jesus said. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Move on to the next slide. Who was the victim in Jesus' story? The point is, Jesus leaves it almost deliberately unclear. Was he a Jew? Was he a Gentile? Was he a Samaritan? Was he a good person? Was he a bad person? Was he a sinner? That's first century thinking. Did he deserve this? Was he a sinner? Had he done a lot of stuff wrong that this was reaped upon him as his reward? Why was he on this road alone? How desperate was he? What was happening in Jericho that he was traveling this dangerous path alone? We don't know. He's got no clothes left. He's got nothing to identify him. And that, I think, is Jesus' point. The question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is saying to this rabbi, your neighbor is anyone. He is everyone. She is everyone. Anyone you see in need, anyone who is in need of a dose of amazing grace, they are your neighbor. Race, color, creed, wealth, good or bad, criminal or not, it doesn't really matter. Everybody is our neighbor. So Jesus says a few people walk by. If you move on to the next slide, the first one is the priest. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, if you don't know about priests, priests are the ones who serve in the holy area of the temple in Jerusalem, descendants of Aaron. Interestingly, they're also Levites, just like the guy who comes next. But they have very special roles to perform. They maintain the stuff that is the holy items around the holy of holies. Uh, they take care of the sacrifices, making the sacrifices on behalf of people who come to the temple, and they offer them to God. They get to eat the meat of some of those sacrifices. And everything that they 
do is in this incredibly holy place in God's presence. And so they have some very strict purity laws that they have to obey. If you move them to the next side, in Leviticus 21 verse 11, it says, a priest must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his father or mother. So if a priest is at home and his mum dies in the room next to him, he cannot go into that room, because to go into that room is to make himself unclean. And if he is unclean, he cannot go into God's presence. He cannot do his job. And he has broken one of the sacred rules of the priesthood. And I don't know what would have happened to him. Would he have been removed from the priesthood? I'm not sure. But what this tells us is that him walking by, passing over and stepping over this man who looks half dead in a road is not that surprising. It's not shocking to the people listening to Jesus. They would expect a priest to do that. It's not nice. I don't want a priest to be the first person who walks past me if I'm lying half dead in a road, but it's understandable. The next person, Jesus says, who walks by is a Levite. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Now, Levites, just like the priests, also have roles in the temple. Uh, They deal with the stuff that is kind of outside of the holy area. So if you were to go back to the Old Testament when the Israelites are walking through the desert, these are the guys that they pack up the temple and they set up the temple and they repair the curtains and they deal with all the peripheral stuff. They are the musicians and the worship leaders in the temple. And so, like all Jews, they also have purity laws that affect them. Numbers uh, 19.11, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. Now, for a normal Jew, that's not that big a deal. If he touches a dead person, well, it doesn't stop him being a carpenter or uh, a fisherman or whatever it might be. He means he can't go to the temple and he's got to purify himself, but it's not a big deal. But for a Levite, it is a big deal. That's going to affect his ability to do his job. His family are going to question him when he gets home. Why did you touch the dead person? What were you doing? You know the impact that has on us. So actually, to the people listening to Jesus, it's, it's not nice but it's not a surprise that the Levite steps over the the dead-looking person in the road as well. On to the next slide. Now, to the people listening to Jesus, this story that he's telling is a little bit like me telling you a joke about an Englishman, an Irishman, and a um, a Scottishman. I knew that, of course. But my point is, so do you. And that is the point, is that this kind of story is something that rabbis in rabbinic literature were telling all the time. They would say things like, well, a priest and a Levite and a Jew, that would be the story. The hero of the story would be a Jew. Joe the plumber from down the road, Fred the, the, the fisherman. Uh, you know, they're the heroes of the story. The priests and the Levites, nobody really liked them because they were people of privilege. But the the Jew was the hero of the story. So everybody's listening to Jesus going, I know where he's going with this. The Jew's going to be the hero of the story. But shock and horror, that is not what Jesus says. On to the next slide. He says it's a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. Move on to the next slide. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense. Why is a Samaritan so shocking to the people listening? 
Well, let me tell you about Samaritans. Samaritans are actually descendants from the Jews. They are descendants from the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And if you know your Old Testament stuff, the northern kingdom of Israel was the, one, was the kingdom that went wayward first. They were renowned for disobeying God, worshipping false gods, and time and time again through the prophets, God warned them to come back to him or he would exile them. So it was the northern kingdom of Israel that got exiled first, and God raised up the Assyrian empire who came in and exiled the 10 northern tribes. They slaughtered many of the Jews, those that survived. They didn't let them live in a nice little Jewish enclave like the Babylonians did when they conquered the south. But the Assyrians dispersed the Jews among their conquered empire. And what this meant was that they then intermarried with the Assyrians and the other nations that they had conquered. And so the Jews uh, who descended uh, from the northern tribes all became mixed blood race. They, They did what God told them not to do, which is don't intermarry with the nations around you. So to a Jew, a Samaritan is someone who represents compromise, a half-blood, someone who's forfeited their right to worship in the temple of Jerusalem, someone who's given up their right to the promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants. They are no longer worthy. So you can imagine, actually, you look for a Samaritan uh, actually this must run deep in them as a people. They are unworthy from birth. They're not good enough. They can't worship the God they believe in. They can't go into the temple. They're discounted from eternity as far as they see it. The Jews hated them because actually to a Jew in Jesus' time, God has been silent for 400 years. There's been no prophets. He's not been moving or acting. And actually what a Samaritan represents is every reason that they think God has a abandon them as a people. So they see a Samaritan and they are compromised. They are everything that we are not. We are better than them. They don't deserve God. They've abandoned him. They can't worship him. They are a disgusting people to to a Jew. So to a Jew to say you're a Samaritan is not just a racial identifier. It's one of the greatest insults that you could pay to someone. And actually they said it to Jesus at one point. They called him a Samaritan. You're less than me. You're not good enough. You don't deserve to be here. So much so that actually, though the Samaritans couldn't worship, they built their own temple outside of Jerusalem. And before Jesus was born, some Jews went and demolished that temple. That's how much they hated them. So do you kind of get that for these Jews listening to Jesus, a Samaritan to be a hero in this story is just unbelievable. It's not possible. That's not who these people are. If you move on to the next slide... And so Jesus sort of puts it all back onto this rabbi and he says, which one of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Because of course the rabbi's question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns it all upside down and says, well, let's look at who is being neighborly in this story. And the expert in this law can't even bring himself to say it was a Samaritan. Do you notice that? He says, the one who had mercy. He can't even say the word. And, And if Jesus' hero of the story, being a Samaritan, is not outrageous enough. Jesus then says to this rabbi, now you, go and be like a Samaritan. Whoa, that is crazy. No wonder there's no more narrative to the story, because they all would have been in stunned silence. Jesus just told a rabbi to go and be like a Samaritan. He would have been thinking about that for weeks and months it would have blown his mind. Now, if we were to translate this to a modern day 
equivalent. I tried to come up with one. It, it's insufficient, actually. I can't think of one. But you know, if I was to walk past someone on the street who had been robbed, had their clothes stolen, beaten, looking half dead, actually, that's easy for us, isn't it? I've got a mobile phone, 999. The police come because a crime's been committed. An ambulance comes because someone's been injured. It's going to be about 20 minutes. I can give him my coat to keep him warm and cover his, his nakedness. Uh, and eventually, the ambulance will turn up, and they'll get, give my coat back to me because they've got blankets and a bed, and they've got bandages, and his medical needs will be taken care of. He's going to get a bed in a hospital. And I've contributed to that because I'm a taxpayer, so that's all good, right? Uh, you know, if I'm being really charitable and I can get a phone number, maybe I call his parents, maybe I even go visit him in a hospital. But if I don't know his name, that's going to be quite hard. They're not going to let me in. So actually, in a modern-day setting, that's so easy for us, isn't it? It's missing something. It's missing. It's missing the risk. It's missing the cost. Because to that Samaritan, whether or not that person lying down was a Jew, it could have been. He could have been helping the enemy, but he did it anyway. And that was massively costly because was it a trap? Was this guy lying in a road actually just a setup by the robbers so that they could get him? Was he the next target? I don't know, but he took that risk. And the cost to him was massive. He gave him his clothes. And it says he bandaged him. Do you carry bandages on you? I don't. So he's ripping up his clothes to bandage this guy. He's, he's damaging his property to take care of this guy. But he doesn't just then leave him there. He puts him on his own horse. He gives up his luxury and his comfort. And then he takes all the risk because he's now the one walking the way of blood on foot while this half-dead guy is on his horse. Or donkey, sorry. Um, and he takes him to an inn. He doesn't just drop him off at the inn. He stays a night. And he pays for the room. He cares for this guy, supplies him with what he needs. And he doesn't stop there because then actually he says to the innkeeper, I'll meet all the costs, whatever they might be, the next time I come back. So he's now given all of his money. He's got nothing left. Um, and on he goes. That is extravagant grace. And actually, I, I don't know about you, but I see in this story the story of grace itself. I see us as the ones who are lying on the road, broken beaten, rejected, unwanted, unable to cry out for help, maybe not even realizing we needed it, and yet God sweeps in, in Christ, and he picks us up, and he rescues us, and he bandages us up, he heals us, he pays the price, he takes care of us, and then he says, now I want you to go and do for others what I have done for you. It's so simple, isn't it? The question is, how would you respond? How would I respond? If I'm walking down the street and I've got my lunch in my hand, would I give it to someone who was hungry at the side of the road, knowing that I can't buy another one? If you're in Sainsbury's doing your shop and the person in front of you has had their wallet stolen or lost, would you get your card out and pay for their shopping? Don't worry, it's on me. No worries. Bless you. If you meet someone who needs a room, would you give them a room in your house for a night, shower? Would you do it for a week? What about a year? What about your car? How precious are you about your car? Would you let someone have your car for a week? You can take the bus, cycle. What would we do? And I, I think about my kids um, with their toys, and I see them fighting over these little plastic toys, and one will, one will get a toy out, or a friend will be around and will get a toy out, and the other one will see it, and he's like, mine, mine, you can't have it. He's not played with it for a year. He's not thought about it for 
11 months, but yet he's seen it. It's mine, my property. How do we respond? Are we like that? My money. I give my 10%. I give my 15%. I give my 50%. I don't know how generous you are. It doesn't matter. But is your instant reaction mine, my money? Do you walk past the person in the street saying, have you got any change, mate? No, sorry, I haven't got any change on me today. I might have 40 quid in my wallet, but I'm not giving it to you. That's really what we're saying, isn't it? Or is it my time? Actually, the five minutes you need is five minutes more than I've got right now. It's my time. I've earned my time. This is my time to sit down and watch Netflix. This is my time to be free from the children. This is my time to rest and relax. Is it possessions? My stuff. My clothes. My car. Last time I lent something out, it came back damaged. I don't want to lend it out again. Um, How tightly do you hold on to stuff? Because actually, if the question of this parable is what is it like for a person who is living on their way to a guaranteed eternity, well, it looks like this. Extravagant grace. Shocking caring. Giving everything that they have to somebody in need. As I was writing this talk, I was sitting in a hotel room, as I often am with my job, and I was reminded of how many times I've been disturbed in hotel rooms, be it uh, a maid coming in while I'm having a shower, which is really awkward, uh, or I'm trying to sleep before a flight and the door opens and someone comes in and you kind of half wake up going, someone was in the room, were they not in the room? I heard the door shut, it's weird. I've had uh, another guest walk into into the hotel room and we're kind of doing this, but this is my room, what are you doing here? Well, they gave me this key, this is my room. No, it's really not, please go. Um, So now you can guess what I now use, those do not disturb signs on the door every time. If you go into a hotel and you see 16 rooms with do not disturb signs, it'll be an airline crew, I guarantee it, because nobody else uses them. But I always put them on the door and it's, it's great. It creates that safe space for me in my hotel room. It says to someone, don't come in. There's actually on the next slide, there's, um, yeah, please don't disturb, I'm sleeping. Well, if I'm awake, I just don't want to see you. That's reality, isn't it? But, you know, as, as I was thinking about this, I was also thinking, actually, sometimes... This is how we go through life, isn't it? Looks good, doesn't it? I should walk down the street like this. Is this, is this you? How many times do you walk down the street and you see the people with clipboards and you're like... Walk around... Or have you ever walked down the street and seen someone you don't want to talk to? I was walking down the street uh, a couple of weeks ago after having a nice holy mentoring session. Um, is this really awkward? Can I keep this on for a bit? Um, uh, and, and I walked past this guy in the street who was pushing his music. Uh, really nice chap. Uh, and, and as I walked past him, I was going to Greg's to get a sausage roll. They're my weakness in life. And, uh, and this guy says to me, uh, do you like music? And I'd seen him. And my reaction was, no. I'm a drummer, <laughs> I play guitar, I love music. Why did I say no? And, and he, he calls me on it, he's like, you don't like music? And I, I had to turn around and say, well, yeah, of course I like music. But I, was, I had this on, I don't want to be disturbed, <laughs> you know? And, and so we end up having this conversation, he accuses me of looking like Ross from Friends, and, and he's this really nice guy, yeah, you're just getting that now. Um, uh, he's this really nice guy, and... Uh, And we have a great conversation, and at the end of it, I'm ashamed of myself, because at the end of it, I say to him, I haven't got any money. 
to give you for one of your... He's just giving out the CD, saying, just give me something, donate to me. And I say, I haven't got any money, and I, I walk away. And I did, I had money, I lied. And I got home, I'll take this off now. I got home that night, and I really wrestled with, why did I do that? Why did I lie? Why didn't I want to help this guy? And thinking through what I'm saying to you today, actually, my attitude should be, what can I do for this guy that he can't do for himself? What would outrageous generosity and grace look like in this situation? Should I have said to him, hey, what are you hoping to get if you gave all these CDs away? How about I give you 200 quid? I don't just have 200 quid, that's going to cost me. But how about I give you 200 quid and I stand here for the next couple of hours and we give all your CDs away and get people to listen to your music? What would that have said to him? That would have been... You know, he's not a person lying dead on the street, but we're not going to find that very often. What are we looking for and what are our reactions? And I think that we need to do a bit of retraining of our hearts and our heads. And we're going to get it wrong a lot. And maybe that's actually what we do is we go home and we think it through and we say, what would have shocking, caring and outrageous grace look like in that situation? How do I do that? And actually, we need an adjustment of our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we hold on to this stuff not so tightly anymore. Because actually, everything that I've got, even if I've earned it, it belongs to God. He's paid the price. No matter how much I give this guy on the street, it doesn't come close to what he's given me, does it? Everything I have is to give away. And often, we get people laid kind of on our hearts, don't we? And we want to pray for them. But I wonder if we separate too much the spiritual and the physical because everything that I've read and my limited experience tells me that we can be praying and praying and praying but when, it's, when we see the breakthrough it's when we start meeting the practical needs when we start giving them what they really need meeting them where they're at and maybe actually that nudge from the spirit for someone is because he's saying I want you to get involved in their life with your money, with your resources, with your possessions and with your time and I want you to give to them and pray for them because then you're going to see the breakthrough that you're praying for not just in their life but in yours as well and, and, I, and I'm not standing up here saying, I've got this nailed. If you know me, you know I do some of this stuff. But I also find this stuff really, I find the money stuff hard. I've got a good job, I get good money. And so and I, I give my money to the church and I give my money to other stuff. But regularly, God like, has to suck the money out of me at times and force me to give a big chunk away because it breaks the hold it has in my life. And, and, and that's what he does on a regular basis to keep me humble, to keep my hands open. Um, this is what life should look like for us. How does it start? I mean, in, in pod groups, you know, you could start doing this in pod groups. If you came to New Wine in the summer, the guy who was teaching in the main arena said in his church that meets in small groups, the first question they have is, does anyone here have a need today? Has everyone got food for the week? Has everyone got their rent paid? Has anyone got a car bill they can't meet? Let's do this together. Let's be community. I'm not saying you have to do that, but if your reaction to that is, that's going to cost me, then I want to suggest that maybe you need an adjustment in your heart as to how you see the things that God lets you steward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the story of grace, that that was us lying in that road, and that you came down, you gave up everything to become nothing, and then you sacrificed even that, that we might have life in your name. 
And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and show us that again. Give us that bigger picture of how amazing what you've done for us really is. And I pray, Father, that you would reshape our hearts and our minds so that we can start to live lives of outrageous generosity and grace, giving away all that we have given to you. Amen.